Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the theme for this morning's sermon, the Lord uses our evil deeds in his saving work, that particular theme is chosen for this text because of the way that this text is able to teach the people of God, the way that it's able to teach every one of us about the power and wisdom and the love of God that is able to give us comfort at all times. The passage that we're hearing from this morning is the first part of a much larger story, the story of Joseph and his brothers. And this narrative that begins here in Genesis chapter 37, it runs all the way to the end of Genesis. There's a massive theme in place here. In this passage, in this very first episode of the Joseph story, God isn't even mentioned once. I don't know if you noticed that when we were making our way through the reading a little while ago. But because we, as the people of God, we are quite familiar with this story, we know how it goes, we know how it ends, we know what purpose these events serve, and because we even hear this, this testimony at the very end of this story about the providence of God, because of all those things, we're able to come to this passage now, and we can recognize the fingerprints of the Lord in all that is happening here. God is at work. God is the one who is driving all of these events towards some good goal of his. God is the one who is making use of all this evil that we see here in this chapter, and he's directing all of these evil actions towards some good end, whatever that is. What a comfort that truth is. Up to this point, the book of Genesis has been a record of the failures of human beings, the failures of God's image bearers and, and co-rulers of the earth. At every single turn, with every single generation, people have acted foolishly, and, and in different ways, humanly speaking, they have jeopardized their life with God. But all the way through, God's promise has remained, and the fulfillment of every promise that he has ever uttered, the fulfillment is still underway. God is not thwarted by even our worst actions. God's faithfulness remains, even when his people are unfaithful. This is part of a series that I had begun in Providence all the way back with um, with Abraham, uh, uh, a series on the patriarchs. And, and this is something that, that we would have seen in, in all of these stories of Jacob, you know, for example, the, his poor deceptive character, the way that, that he constantly relied on his own, uh, his own genius, his own wiles and cunning, the way that he failed so often to seek the will of God instead of his own will, but even all through that, God was driving forward the fulfillment of the promises that he had given to Abraham and Isaac and then to Jacob. 
God had taught him to trust in him, and God himself secured the blessings that he had promised. So now here we are. In the next generation, the lives of Jacob's children, and guess what? Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. We have another story of people behaving unfaithfully and foolishly. So what's going to come of all of this? Is God going to say, enough? I'm done with you. I'm going to move on to some other people, and, and these particular promises are going to, are going to be snuffed out and, and come to nothing. What's going to come of all of this? So, in the first four verses of our passage, we're given sort of a summary of how Jacob's family is faring. How Jacob's family is pretty dysfunctional, right? These first four verses, Joseph is set at odds with his, with his brothers. These are his half-brothers. Joseph, uh, if we remember, is the first son that was born to Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, the, the wife that he had wanted at the beginning. Um, but if we remember how he was deceived by Laban, um, he received uh, Leah as a, as a wife first, and then uh, Rachel, and then in the course of time, he also took his wives, the servants of Rachel and Leah, these are Bilhah and Zilpah. So in the first four verses here, uh, Joseph is tending the flock with some of Jacob's other sons, the sons that were born to these, uh, the servants of Rachel and Leah, and these are you know, third-class wives in, in Jacob's family. And yes, uh, these sons were, were born in, 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 in this contest between Rachel and Leah, and they were, these wives were used as pawns in this childbearing competition. What, what an absolute disaster of, of a family, right? So Joseph is out here um, in the field working with these older brothers of his, and we read that he brought a bad report. This is in verse 2. Joseph brought a bad report of them, of his brothers, to their father. And we have to realize here, it's not just that, you know, his brothers did something really bad and then he tattled on them in order to curry more favor with their father for himself, but it probably means that he was even exaggerating this report. He reported badly, uh, it literally says, or he misrepresented them to some degree. And by the way, we're told Jacob loved Joseph more than all his brothers. That's what we read in verse 3. Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. He was given this very beautiful, ornate robe to wear. And this, this robe was a very visible and obvious sign of the favoritism that Jacob showed. It was, for his brothers, it was a daily reminder that he was special to Jacob and they were not. You imagine how, how obvious that, that would be. Like, think of a father who has a bunch of sons, and every single one of these sons, you know, their father graciously gives them a, a car, you know, when they turn 16. But what kind of car do they get? They get something like a, like a Ford Pinto, uh, a, a rusted out, you know, piece of junk. And that's what they drive around. And then here comes Joseph, and their father gives him this brand new Lamborghini. 
obviously he feels uh, quite strongly about this very special son. And every time, you know, Joseph would, would, would drive up in this Lamborghini, woo, the, the brothers are going to know, oh, of course, here comes Joseph, the favorite, right? That's what that robe was, was doing uh, in, in that relationship. It was, a, it was a daily sign of the fact that, that Jacob loved Joseph and the rest of his brothers were not special at all. So, in verses 5 to 11, we're given the setting there. In verses 5 to 11, God now causes things to come to a breaking point in their family. Joseph has a dream. And we're told that when he told his brothers the dream, they hated him even more. It's kind of like we're being told. And when you hear what this dream is, you're going to understand why Joseph's brothers began to hate him even more. And of course, this is a very well-known story. It's included in many, uh, you know, children's Bible story books. It's even a, a, it's been the subject of a Disney, you know, animated movie. Um, so it's well-known, even among non-Christians. So he first has this dream. He's working in the field with his brothers, and Joseph tells his brothers this. Of course, they're going to hate him when, when he tells them this. You know, guess what? We, we were all binding sheaves in the field, and you wouldn't believe what happened. My sheaf stood upright, and then your sheaves all gathered around mine and started bowing down to it. Isn't that amazing? What do you think of that? What do you think of that? The fact that your sheaves were bowing down to my sheaf. How would you react if you were one of Joseph's brothers. Here's this brother that is reminded, and you're reminded too, every single day of how special he is, wearing that ridiculous robe, flaunting it in front of everyone. And then he not only has this dream about how great he is and how great you aren't, but then he goes and tells them about it. Guess what? I had a dream that I was a lot better than you. What do you think of that? And then, of course, there's the second dream. I was standing there, and the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. Obviously, we know what that means. The sun, the moon, that's, that's Jacob, and then uh, Joseph's mother, Rachel. And then, oh, 11 stars, and there's 11 brothers. I wonder what that means. Jacob joins in in rebuking him now, too. And the brother's hatred is growing. Can you believe this guy? this brother of ours, these dreams. But we can see, too, that Jacob is actually taking special note of this. You know, dreams are important. We remember the dreams that, that Jacob himself had. Jacob had a dream at Peniel with, with this ladder that was going up to heaven. And in that dream, God had appeared to Jacob. And it was in that dream that God revealed things to him and, and made promises to him. So it seems like Jacob, even though he's criticizing Joseph, he's open-minded that this could be from the Lord. You know, what does it mean? And we're given, you know, the inside scoop. Yes, this is from the Lord. These dreams are, are very special. You know, they, they not only have content 
about the future. They not only reveal the future and tell the things that God is going to do, but these dreams are, they actually serve two purposes. Number one, they say what's going to happen, and then the dreams are actually used by God to bring about the content of those dreams. God uses the dreams to stir up that, that strife in the family to bring about the things that are coming. So yes, at some point, Joseph is going to be of some high status, and his brothers and, and, and even his brother are going, to, are going to honor him and tremble before him and show him honor. He will be a, a ruler over them and Jacob's whole household. God is going to bring that about. How? Well, it's through this horrible act of hatred, an act of hatred that is almost unthinkable. It's almost unbelievable that, that, that this would happen. Like already this story is being propelled by really foolish and sinful people, but it's about to get even worse, right? So in the, in the second part of this passage, things take a really severe turn. We've been told a couple of times that his brothers hated him. And, like, did that really hit home for us? How much they hated him? It's, they're not just annoyed with him. They're not just a little bit jealous of him. <laughs> they actually had pure hatred in their hearts for him. They felt nothing but disgust him. They did not like him one bit. They did not love him. They wanted to be rid of him. They actually wanted him to be dead. Their brother. So J Joseph is sent by Jacob to go check on his brothers, and while they're, out with, while they're out with the flocks, Joseph finds them, and as he's approaching, they recognize him from a distance. You know, maybe from the robe. Oh, great, here he comes. And finally, they've had enough. They recognize him from quite a distance away, and apparently they had enough time to quickly arrive at this conclusion about what they're going to do. They hatch this plan, and this is what they decide. Let's, let's do it. We're sick of him. Let's actually end his life. Let's kill him. Throw him in this pit. We'll cover it up. We'll say that a wild animal must have killed him. They don't have CSI, forensics, DNA tests on blood. They can't do any of that stuff. Sprinkle a little blood on his robe and everyone will be convinced that this is what happened. We do not have to deal with this spoiled brat anymore. Life will be better without him. So, of course, Reuben talks some sense into them. He convinces his brothers not to kill Joseph, at least not yet. Let's just throw him in this pit. And Reuben actually has the plan to, maybe when they've calmed down a little bit, Reuben will rescue Joseph out of there and give him back to his father, save his life. So while they're eating, this trading caravan comes by, and apparently Reuben is not there to stop it. 
Judah takes charge and says, you know what, there's nothing in it for us if we kill him. And, you know, he's our brother, so it's probably wrong for us to, to shed his blood. That's, that's, that's maybe going too far. Let's just sell him to these people. Then we'll be rid of him, and we won't be guilty of murder, so that's, that's good for us. But we'll also make some money, right? So they sell him for this bag of silver. That's what they did. They don't end his life, but they're rid of him. They want Joseph out of their lives. They make it happen. They strip off Joseph's robe, soak it in blood. They trick their father. It's done. Joseph is gone. They don't have to deal with him anymore. And who knows what's ever going to come of him. He'll be sold as a slave. They're selling him as a slave. He now belongs to someone else. He'll probably have an awful life, but whatever. At least they don't have to deal with him anymore. Could you imagine treating a brother or a sister of yours in that way? Could you imagine hating somebody as much as Joseph's brothers actually hated him? This is a story of pure evil. And this is, this is the family that God is working out all of his plans with? These are the, the people that are closest to God of all the, the people on earth. This is incredible. But somehow this is part of God's plan, that these things would happen. God is using these incredibly evil-filled events He's using the hatred and evil in the hearts of his people to bring about something greater. We have to realize that while Joseph is down there in the pit, he doesn't know, like he doesn't, he can't see the things that are ahead. The brothers certainly aren't looking ahead to this and, and justifying themselves because of something good that God is going to do. But if we look ahead... We can sort of sneak a peek at the end of this story, and we can see what thing God has in mind for all of this. In Genesis chapter 50, so we're really skipping ahead, there's a lot that happens between Joseph being in the pit and being sold as a slave and the things that happen at the very end. Somehow, somehow, Joseph goes from being sold as a slave to being the governor or the prime minister over all of Egypt. Pharaoh is the only one that Joseph doesn't have authority over by this point in Genesis 50. <clears throat> God had given him wisdom to rule well and to provide food during this time of really severe famine that, that, that afflicted the entire known world. And at that time, when Joseph's brothers are so terrified that Joseph is going to have revenge on them for all of this that, that we've just read about, all of the hatred and the despicable things that they've done for him, Joseph says to his brothers, this is beginning at verse 16, or uh, verse 19, Joseph says to them, do not fear. So this is in response to them pleading for their lives. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. Of course, it's true. 
But God meant it for good to bring, about, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as you are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So we see the, the end of all of these things that are happening in this passage, his providential care, making use of their evil for his purposes, and his purposes were not just limited to the saving of lives during that famine. That was one outworking, and that was a demonstration of the fact that God's hand is in all of this, but, but something even greater is at work. All of this is, is, is the root cause of Israel, Right, The nation of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, this is the root cause of them being in Egypt as slaves themselves. This is all setting the groundwork, setting the framework for God's first great act of deliverance that he works out for his people. And that great act of deliverance, so the rescue of Israel from slavery in Egypt, that act of deliverance is a blueprint, it's a picture, it's a type of the greatest deliverance that God would work out for us. Deliverance from slavery to sin and death through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. How remarkable is all this? That this story of God making use of evil for some salvation... It contains so many hints, so many pictures, so many whispers about the way that God would save us through Jesus Christ. We're meant to see something of Jesus here in this passage. This is, this is typology. Through, in, in God's word, there are many figures who are meant in some way to communicate something about who Jesus is and what he would do. You know, David is the, the messianic king, the, the king, the man after God's own heart who in so many ways personified who the great Messiah, Jesus Christ, would be. We have the same thing here with Joseph. Joseph is in some way a little picture of Jesus Christ. In some ways he could be contrasted with him, you know, in, in, his, in his foolishness and his lack of wisdom in the way that he blabs with his mouth about who he is and, and, and all of this. And Jesus, in contrast, was humble and, and kept his mouth shut when it was appropriate to keep his mouth shut. But here, his, his brothers betray him. They sell him for this bag of silver. You know, we have a difference between 20 pieces of silver and 30 pieces of silver, but we're meant to see whispers of this betrayal of Jesus Christ. And it's, this is remarkable. These brothers, through their evil, wicked betrayal of their brother, their very lives are saved. We're disgusted with the hatred that Joseph's brothers could have for him and the things that they could do to their own brother, but this is nothing. The things that Joseph's brothers did to him is nothing compared to the horror of hating 
Jesus Christ himself, rejecting Jesus Christ, true and eternal God, and crucifying him in that hatred. That's what happened to Jesus Christ. This is the greatest example, and there will never be a greater example, of God doing marvelous things through the evil works of human beings. We see something of Jesus' compassion. He's hanging there on the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And we just read this passage from Genesis 50. Joseph forgives his brothers. Don't worry. Yes, you meant it for evil, but you are forgiven because God is so much greater. How incredible that God would weave together this story. And, and it would even be remarkable that so far ahead of time, he would tell a story. If the, even if this was just a parable about the work of Christ and the salvation that would come through him. But this happened. This is history. God actually weaves events together, shapes history, actually making things come about in such a way that history is weaved together into this vision of some great thing that is coming. What a God! That he would actually make events happen that proclaim Jesus Christ. God does that. And what a comfort that evil, such pure evil, does not ruin God's plan. Evil itself is made to somehow fit into his plans and even be a, a, a gear in the machine that God uses to bring these things about. This ought to be a great comfort for us. We know, we believe, we've heard God's promises. God has promised and proclaimed salvation and forgiveness to you. A wonderful, glorious future with him. And we act like we don't trust him. That he's going to bring it about. We forget, or at least we act as if God is not sovereign. We forget how perfect and comprehensive God's providence is. God is using evil. God is using hard circumstances to bring about the thing that he's going to bring about, the, the saving of many lives, the saving of your life. Using different things in each one of you to bring about the saving of your life. So that you trust in him. So that you don't forget that you are completely in God's hands. We might get anxious that, you know, our, our sinfulness, our weakness, all of the, the ways that we have failed to be faithful to God, that we may have driven God's work in our lives off the rails, that, that somehow we've become 
so weak and, and helpless that we have frustrated God's, God's grace for us. <clears throat> we failed so many times, or we're discouraged, or we're confused about how God could permit something to come into our lives that robs us of joy today, that robs us of joy and security. How could God let such evil or hardship or difficulty or sadness how could he let that come upon me? How could this possibly be the thing that God determined to use to keep me in his care, to save my life, to bring about my forgiveness of sins, my everlasting life? This is a foundational belief that we have, that God has assured us of. Romans 8, verse 28, in all things, not some things, not most things, in all things, even the tiniest minutia of our lives, and the hardest thing, the hardest thing, in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to to his purpose. We have this example, this example of God steering all of these things in such remarkable ways. He did this for Joseph, for, for his people, the people that bore his promises and who would receive the fulfillment of his promises, and he also blessed the world around them through all of this, the evil that was done was used to bring about salvation and to lift up Joseph as this picture of the Savior. And we can have confidence today, we must have confidence today that God is the same today and his providence is the same. He still has the ability and the willingness to that's important. God is both willing and able to bring the highest good and the highest blessing through even the most awful circumstances. So whatever is going on in your life, this has to be foundational. God is doing something marvelous. His ways are so high above our ways. We sang this right before the sermon. Psalm 92. Your works are great and splendid. Oh, how profound your thought. It's not just some of the works of God. All of the works of God are great and splendid. And somehow, when the blindness has gone from our eyes and the and, and, and the, the darkness is removed from our minds and, and, and we can see what God has done. We know, we have comfort that somehow we will be able to say thank you to God for even the very worst day of our lives. Hymn 83, we sing that. When once life's evening veils enshroud me, so it's... When, when we die, at the time of my death, when once life's evening veils enshroud me, I'll bring the worn by ills and strife, 
For every day thou hast allowed me the higher praise, O God of life. I'll thank you for the worst day of my life somehow. His ways are so high above our ways. His thoughts, his plans are profound. We are in very good hands, the hands of our loving and heavenly Father. Amen.